Welcome to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast. My name is Mandy Rhodes. I'm the editor of Hollywood Magazine. And joining me to discuss the week in politics is my award-winning writer, Liam Kirkcaldy. Join myself and Mandy, and the odd politician, of course, as we chew the political fat and spit it out on the pages of the forthcoming issue of Hollywood Magazine. Have you, have you heard the expression, have you heard of a rat licker before, Mandy? A rat licker is a newfound expression for someone that's, it's a, it's a reference to the plague. So it's the idea that if you're refusing to wear a mask during a pandemic, you're basically akin to someone during the plague that would just go up and start licking rats. Hamza's sister during our first pregnancy, at this point, um, his parents didn't have any grandchildren. We were both pregnant at the same time. We both miscarried that same weekend. You know, this isn't just a loss for us, it was a loss for the wider family because mm-hmm. parents were so desperate for, for grandchildren. Yeah. The wider issue about the, pro- the programme for government is that I think, you know, clearly everybody knew that there would be something in the programme for government about the independence referendum, um, but it has allowed the opposition parties to say that this just shows a government that actually isn't focused completely on recovery from COVID and is just consumed by independence. So, Liam, I'm glad to have you back from your holidays. Have you had a nice one? I had, yeah, I had a lovely time. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a wee puppy, so I've taken um, two weeks off to try and teach him some wisdom and, you know, to get him involved in the world. Oh, he'll be the smartest puppy, no doubt. Oh, he's really bright, yeah. I mean, he's, yeah. he's, he's a yellow lab, so I think he has the makings to become a, a guide dog if necessary. Um, I, I mean, I tried to put a lead on him yesterday and he just he attacked me for 10 minutes. But I, oh. I think with time, he's going he's gonna to grow to be more of an assistance dog than he currently is. Oh, well, hopefully he'll assist you well in the podcast going forward. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'll probably bring him in as a sort of intern at some point. Um, and if, if we do Hollywood Dog of the Year, then I'll, I'll take him along to bear witness, as it were. Oh, of course. There's, there's no competition in this at all. No, no. Anyway. Um, I'm, I'm delighted to be back, yes. Good. And you missed a magazine going to print. Um, I did, and I actually, I haven't, I'm, I'm a bit unsure about what's been going on in Scottish politics. So I think, if anything, this will be more of an educational experience for me than anything. Oh, well, I'm here to do that. <laughs> <laughs> So I suppose we should start, as usual, with our good week and bad week. I mean, I'm sure even though you've not been fully engaged in the political bubble, you will have noticed a couple of things. Yeah, well, I mean, off the top of my head, from what I've seen, it seems like it's been quite a good week for supporters of Scottish independence. I noticed in the Programme for Government, one of the key bits there was plans for another independence referendum or for legislation. That's right. Um, So the Programme for Government was announced. We've got a very short, short parliamentary session. So it goes from now until um, kind of last week in March when the Parliament will be dissolved ahead of the election in May. So the First Minister um, announced a programme for government and much to the excitement, I guess, of independent supporters, um, there is a bill planned that will set out um, the plans for the next independence referendum on the Scottish government's preferred question, the terms and the timing. Um, so we're so going to squeeze in a quick, uh, squeeze in a quick bill before March, then basically. Yeah, exactly. I mean, given that the first minister suspended, basically suspended all cross-party hostilities when we were confronted with COVID, she's definitely now fired the starting gun both on the election campaigning, but also on independence yet again. Yeah, I mean, I suppose we've I've, we've put this down as a good week for supporters of independence. I mean, it's probably quite a good week for the Scottish Tories as well in that sense, given that, you know, an, an indie ref is quite good for them. Ruth Davidson did very well in 2016, or did, did well in 2016 at least, um, you know, with campaigning against one. I suppose there's kind of a mutually beneficial relationship there as long as we keep talking about independence. Yeah, although I guess um, what you've missed this week is everybody wants to talk about the fact that Ruth Davidson is now going to be called Baroness Davidson. <laughs> I, I saw that, yeah. So she's not a Baroness, that's the thing. She's, she's, she's not a Baroness, a baroness. yet, Liam. <laughs> yeah. A Baroness in waiting. 
So she's don't call her Baroness Ruth Davidson, basically. No, and there was a story in the papers at the weekend that she'd complained to the BBC about the fact that she had been called Baroness Davidson in a particular report. I mean, I think perhaps she hasn't complained terribly seriously either, Mm. but people have got quite irate about this and saying, well, she is going to be a Baroness. What's the problem? I mean, I I can tell you from my own personal experience, no one ever calls me a Baroness. Um, No. There's a a really good reason for that, and it's because I'm, I'm not going to become one. Well, you could be one in waiting for all we know. Do you think that's? <laughs> I don't think that's a possibility. Are you but she... <laughs> no, I'm not tipping you off for anything. She, no. um, she is going to be a baroness, and clearly, all that this has done is highlight the fact that um, it it isn't a great look for the Tories. So it means that everybody will just keep calling her Baroness. Davidson. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's like trying to invent your own nickname, isn't it? Yeah, kind of I think. The wider issue about the the program for government is that I think you know clearly everybody knew that there would be something in the program for government about the independence referendum, um, but it has allowed the opposition parties to say that this just shows a government that actually isn't focused completely on recovery from COVID and is just consumed by independence, although. That always bothers me slightly. I mean, it is a party. The SNP is a party of independence. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we saw scenes in the parliament, which you, I think you'd scenes. have enjoyed. Oh, there scenes. Alex Cole Hamilton, who's now earned the moniker Alex Cole Ham actor. Um, <laughs> he, he himself said he lost his temper in the parliament and got up and gave the first minister a right doing about what yeah. he thought she was doing with um, a referendum. He yeah. seemed quite. He seemed quite pleased with that. Actually, I thought. I mean, he, he said he lost his temper, but he did also promote it on Twitter. Yeah. Um, Do you know p- politicians tend to lose me when they start quoting other great speeches from other great politicians? So Alex Cole Hamilton was channel channeling um, JFK, which yeah. you know I I never understand it. If one politician has made just an amazing speech, why would you just repeat them? Surely you should try and create your own great speech. Well, I mean, I guess it's it's probably fair to say that Alex Cole Hamilton is the JFK of Edinburgh of uh, of Kerstorfen, really. Mm. <laughs> I'm not even sure it's is it Kostorfin? No, it's not Kostorfin. Well, he doesn't. Who knows? Don't. I mean, I've been off, Mandy. I'm scattered. The I know. I know. I know. But uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, he was in no mood for forgiving the FM for her obsession with independence, um, which kind of brings us on to another um, talk of forgiveness. I suppose there is none, none on offer for the Labour leader because that's the oh, other yeah. thing that you've missed this last <laughs> no, week. No, I really enjoyed that. I actually, I, I tuned back into Scottish politics just because of how much I enjoy a, a Labour uh, infight. No, well, they come along often. <laughs> they do, yeah. I mean, it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty safe to say if it's any day of the week, you're quite likely to get a, a fight in Labour, or at least an attempted coup. I thought maybe yeah. after Corbyn had gone, things might have calmed down a little bit because you feel like maybe one faction had, had, had won out, but no. Yeah. Well, I suppose we all know that James Kelly isn't one for sitting things out, is he? He likes standing, so he no. has stood to make his point that he feels Richard Leonard should resign, and he was then joined by three other MSPs who also feel Richard Leonard should resign, and then. They were joined by um, various peers of the realm, which I thought was an interesting one, that you have unelected peers calling for an elected leader to stand down in the name of democracy. Well, the funny thing to me is it's it's, it's, it's as though they don't know everyone's watching. 
you know, it's yeah. like they, they, they're having this fight and they think it's in private in some way and then they're publishing these letters. I mean, I know. I mean, it's, it's just, it happens again and again and again. Yeah, well, actually, it's what I wrote my column on for this magazine. I was just saying it becomes almost like a tedious rerun of Comedy Gold. Um, and it just, we're all expecting it. It all happens. They all blame the current leader. Uh, and I have to say, you know, I, I think what came out is that everybody thinks Richard Leonard's a really decent person, a nice person. Mm-hmm. Although um, I noticed one Tory English MP saying that she hadn't realised why Labour was doing so badly in Scotland until she listened to his accent uh. and realised he was, well, she said Lancashire, he's actually from Yorkshire, which I thought was, um, had a hint of racism, to be honest to that, that she yeah, feels that you you don't see that from anyone really in Scottish politics. You know, you don't really get any supporters of independence that have a go at him for his accent. So it's quite no. weird that a party of the union would have yeah. a problem. Absolutely. So, but basically, what people are saying is that he's done an even worse job than any of the other eight leaders. And, you know, I think that's what remembering <laughs> that since 1999, when um, we, the Scottish Parliament was formed, we are now on to our ninth leader of Scottish Labour. I mean, that's mm-hmm. one almost every couple of years. Well, it's, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because they've tried all sorts of different leaders. And the story of devolution really is the story of the decline of Scottish Labour from a really high point to where they are now. And there yeah. seems to be a total failure to recognise that there might be deeper lying problems than just the face of the party. Yeah. And also, you know, would you want to take over? If you're an up and coming, I don't know who they would actually want to take over anyway, but would you want to take charge of that party now? Hasn't everyone in the parliament almost had a go at it? Or at least at least thrown their hat in the rig at some point? Well, maybe they'll start again. It's interesting, actually. I was I was speaking to Professor Mitch, James Mitchell at the weekend about it, because I think even for those of us that are really involved in the political bubble, the, the decline and the death of Scottish Labour remains still a bit of a mystery. You're, you know, we can all point to certain things that we think may have happened. But um, actually, James Mitchell was saying to me that he thinks he could go back to 2001. And when Henry McLeish took over as first minister, and then ended up having to resign over mm. a muddle, over expenses to do with office, an office um, that he was subletting, I think, to himself. Um that looking back on that, that was probably quite a pivotal moment because Jack McConnell took over from Henry McLeish. It kind of baked in some of the infighting that goes on within yeah, the Labour that was, Party. Yeah, it was quite a messy handover, wasn't it? It was. But I think also when you look back, you think, really, did he need to resign? When you look at things that happen now and people don't resign for. But mm. it, it did sort of bake in hostilities and this kind of infighting that goes on and on. It means they're not focusing on other things. Yeah, no, I know. It's, and it, it doesn't give them any time to bring in a new generation because the second that someone comes in, they have to become leader because they've already got rid of the old leader. Well, I think the other um, telling point in this is, I think if I'm right, there, there are two constituency MSPs in the Labour Party in the Scottish Parliament. The rest are all elected on the list and there's definite vying for position on the list going on right now as well. Mm. So, you know, not only are you talking about the politics, you're also talking about self-interest. Um, I just, it, it's a, a very messy situation. And as you say, how do you bring in new talent if you've already got the old guard completely battling away about list positions? Mm-hmm. So anyway, <laughs> I 
suppose that I, brings us back to the start in a way, doesn't it? Because it's still a very, very good week for supporters of Scottish independence if Labour is in this sort of disarray, because the Tories are only going to ever have limited appeal. Yeah. And I think in some ways, you know, you, you can go back over the years, look at all the different leaders and different points where they perhaps could have done things differently. But I guess my my reflections on it would be that the Scottish Labour Party always underestimated the SNP. Mm. And I think now we've got to a situation where the constitutional question is one that basically Scottish Labour have to embrace and have a very good argument against an independence referendum, if that's mm. the position they're going to take, or they're going to have to accept that um, they take a position on the referendum that they have at the referendum. Mm. And then I suppose the other thing that's worth adding is that they just they never give us our owls, did they? <laughs> they didn't give us the owls, which they was said a bad thing. They would hand out owls move. and they just never did. Yeah. I'm waiting for my owl, Mandy. Oh. And I, let's move on to other things in the magazine because you need to catch up fast. <laughs> I do, yeah. Well, I, I did read your column, by the way. I should have, oh, I should have said that. I, I mean, right. That's already that's up on our website now, so I have yeah. seen it. Okay, cool. Now, so the, this magazine is always our annual take on basically taking the temperature of the nation's health. Um, and obviously, with COVID, that has dominated everything we've written in this issue of the magazine about health, how we reorganise, how we deliver health, um, and, and looking at the consequences of how the NHS was um, pivoted to dealing with COVID. Mm. And there's some pretty heartbreaking stuff in there about people that were diagnosed with cancer or had cancer treatments suspended. And, and clearly there's a lot to be done as we go forward um, in terms of how we we look after our nation's health. Yeah, I mean, we do we do this issue uh, on a regular basis. Every year we do, we do look at this and there's always plenty of content for it. There's always so much to look at when you don't have COVID going on. So, I mean, how, it's sort of a, a lesson in how stretched things must really be that you know, we we can already fill a magazine with these sort of problems before you get to that sort of issue. Yeah, I mean, I think ongoing particular issues around cancer services are just going to keep um, breaking the news. Really, it, it it's heartbreaking for people that are right in the middle of it. Mm. I mean, the, the other thing that we looked at, and um, we're in fact, I think this week in Parliament, the the Scottish government's debate is going to be about the Cumberledge review. Yep, which was looking at particular um, treatments of uh, health treatments for women. And it was such a damning report. I mean, at the end of it, I think she was basically saying that women suffered basically because they're women and mm. that their, their anxieties and their concerns were not taken seriously. And in a way that kind of runs through the bigger interview that I've done in this issue of the magazine, which is with Hunza uh, Yousaf and his wife, Nadia. Yeah, and that's they, a, a very personal interview, I understand. Yeah, it really is. I mean, they've talked very openly about the multiple um, miscarriages that they've gone through. Mm. Um, so both, we've got their interview on the podcast as well, but in the magazine, they're talking about why they want to raise awareness of this issue. And... They believe, I mean, Nadia is going to be very involved in a campaign that is launched in a couple of weeks looking at miscarriage awareness and the mm. things, very simple things that people can start to think about. Um, and I have to say, after speaking to them both, I, I guess I hadn't realised quite the impact that this can have on, on your lives going mm. forward. So yeah. I think we're going to listen to some of that now. 
So my 11-year-old's her previous marriage um, got pregnant at 24 very easily, um, had a fine pregnancy. It wasn't until after my pregnancy I found out that I had a bicornate uterus and there's some complications with that but because I'd had a well, like relatively normal pregnancy it was fine. Um, after that I had one miscarriage and then I had like five years of infertility, just unexplained. Um, so then when I met Humza after my divorce, I, I did say that I'm not sure if I can have kids, you know, this is, this is what my history is. Um, yeah, and then from there we got pregnant relatively quickly. Mm. We got married in at our Islamic wedding in the July, the end of July, and we got pregnant October. Mm-hmm. When was that? What year? 2017. Right. Mm. And, and that idea that maybe there'd be a problem with children, was that an issue for you? No, not really. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'd always wanted to be dad, but yeah. for me, having a stepdaughter, being we stepdad... We talked to me about it. Yeah, time, yeah. exactly. For me, it was just, it was just great. And uh-huh. It gave me a joy that I'd never had before. So I was reconciled myself with you know, if I've got Maya, then for me that's being a dad, so, uh, but no, I mean, I'd always, if you talk to any of my family members, I've got tons of cousins, and uh, I've got kids, and my sister's got a kid, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the one who's always playing with the kids, and probably spend more time with the kids than I do with the adults, <laughs> Quite right. I'm, 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 that, I'm that guy, so for me, you know, it, was, it, it did mean a lot, but at the same time, uh, having Maya was, for me, like, you know, just, just as much as being a dad as it is to, to being a mom's dad. You also don't really think about it. I mean, I didn't think about it when we had problems. You just kind of think these things will happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and people give advice which they think is helpful, you know. Just don't think about it and it'll happen. I think that's my pet peeve is people seem to think the power of thought is a contraception. And I'm like, why are we not, you know, if that's the case, it'd be great, you know. (laughs) Just overthink it and you won't get pregnant. Um, And I think a lot around young people and young girls, myself, from my experience, not getting taught about fertility you get your periods, try not to get pregnant, and, and that's mm. kind yeah. of our education. Um, so, yeah, not really understand what was going on with my body, if anything was going on with my body, the psychological, the, the well-being, all that coming into play. Um, it's very stressful. It's very difficult to be trying to get pregnant and not get pregnant. It's very difficult to have polycystic ovaries and, and you know, a condition that makes it difficult. It's difficult when you get pregnant and you have a loss. There's pregnancy anxiety. There's just you know you know stillbirth. There's so much that women have to go through, and, and, and men you know families have this pain, and it's not always addressed. It seemed to be that happened. Don't talk about it. Especially if you've got another child. It's like well you have a child now, so you don't know your okay. needs have been met. Yeah. And it's not about having loads of children. It's about you had like when you're pregnant, you have something that you've made together. And that means something, mm-hmm. and it means something for different couples. And when you lose that, that meaning also means it's something different for different people. So being able to talk about it, I think, is a huge step forward that needs to happen. Well, during the, the five years when you'd been trying mm-hmm. for a baby before, I mean, so when you two got together, was that in the back of your mind? Mm-hmm. I know there've been issues mm-hmm. going on. What happens now? Yeah. So the, I didn't think. There was a possibility I couldn't get pregnant. So when I, the first time I got pregnant in that October, I was just so excited to see a line. I couldn't believe it. Uh-huh. Like it's happened so quickly. Mm. We were so excited. And so when we had that loss, it almost felt like it's okay because now I know I can get pregnant. That was a step uh-huh. forward. It's funny because I was way more excited than you. <laughs> I remember when I came to the flat and uh, you were in the flat at the time and then you told me. 
and uh, I wonder if I was more excited because I, it just hadn't even entered my mind that this pregnancy would not go full term. I just uh, hadn't even crossed my mind that for a second that this would be anything other than in nine months' time we will have a child in our arms. Because I wonder if for you actually you had that all that previous on your mind, um, and, and, and I suppose that's what you were talking about when you were saying, I don't know if you can fully enjoy it, and, and you know, I don't know get pregnant again or what will happen in the future. I can certainly tell you from having a mile, I did not enjoy that pregnancy yeah. at all. Um, you know, Nadia obviously went through it, but it was just so anxiety-ridden because of what we've been through before. Really. Yeah. And with that first pregnancy, did that last long? So I think we miscarried about seven, seven. seven weeks, but so what had happened was I was bleeding uh-huh. and then they were being scanned but there was still a heartbeat so we were kind of thinking oh that would be okay and then we got scanned again and the heartbeat was gone so we said what do you want to do? So we said well naturally wait because you get options, naturally wait, no I got a pessary sorry um, and that didn't work so we went back and said nothing's happened after a few days and then I think I got a DNC in the end. No, I had a massive bleed. Like, mm. I mean, I passed out. I was sick. Mm. The, it was just, it was horrendous. And I'm anemic anyway, so mm. the blood loss was huge. Um, so in the end, I got a DNC. Um, and that was very much the trajectory for the second pregnancy as well. That kind of, that scene. The, baby, the, the fetus was growing. Uh-huh. So you almost had this false hope. And the heartbeat was, was there. Um, you know that period where you know you're pregnant and you know there might be some issues because you're starting to bleed mm-hmm. and that lack of control over what can happen. Uh, yeah, so I hadn't had bleeding in pregnancy before that hadn't ended in miscarriage, so I immediately think of miscarriage, um, but then when you see the heartbeat it's called a threatened miscarriage, mm-hmm. so then you have a little bit of hope again, um, and then I remember asking, I think you had to work, and I went myself, and, there, and, and all my symptoms, the minute I, my symptoms went, I knew that it was over. So I went to the hospital and they scanned me and they said, yeah, so it's not there. And I did, I said, you just check like one more time. Just because, you know, I don't want to make a decision to have a DNC and mm-hmm. there's some, a chance. There was no chance and that, and that was that. Was that. Um, but How did that bit feel for you? Because, I mean, I, it is just an awful lack of control. You can't do anything. You want desperately to keep this thing. Mm-hmm. For a woman, you're going through that. You can't do anything to stop that. It's the most helpless I've ever felt, I think, in my life, to be honest. And, and, and that's it, because you, and I know this is really outdated sounding, but you know, you want to be really, really strong for your, in my case, for my wife. And I wanted to make sure that I knew what she was, but I didn't actually know what she was going to go through, but I can see if, as, I mean, you know, again, perhaps we get into graphic detail here, but I mean, Nadia was passing clots of blood. Yeah. Um, you know, and and passing out, you know, as I was trying to help her to get from the bed to, to, to the bathroom, um, you know, trying to get her to get a little bit of water to keep hydrated. Nobody gives you a manual for this kind of stuff. Nobody tells you, by the way, see if a miscatch happens, this is what happens. Actually, you, you watch Hollywood uh, movies uh, or TV programs and dramas, and, you know, the women are going to a cubicle, there'll be a bit of blood in the tissue, she'll be upset, and that'll be the end of them, move on to the next scene in the movie. Nobody tells you, actually, in some cases, in our cases, and almost all of them, just how horrifically traumatising they've been for women who's suffering with the miscarriage and going through the physical and emotional elements of it. 
for me, I just felt utterly helpless. One, not knowing what to do. So, you know, calling my sister, who's a pharmacist, my older sister, you know, what do I do? She's keep her hydrated. And, you know, but I can't stop bleeding. Um, you know, all I can do is just hold her hand and tell her, look, you know, I'm there. And, but at the same time, I'm trying to process a loss. So I'm trying to process a, a loss that's happening to both of us. But you've got to be, you've got to be, you've got to be the strong one. <clears throat> you've got to, because, you know, if you, if, if I end up in total despair, you know, I'm thinking she's going through all that. She's, it's going to be worse for, for both of us. Um, so no, I, I really, perhaps the first, the first miscarriage, um, you know, you kind of put it down to, I remember thinking, oh, can you just put that down to bad luck, and, and it can happen to anybody, and I know it's happened to Nadia before. Um, it was really, actually the second one I found um, probably the most difficult one. For, for me, the second one was, you know, I, I, although I was really happy being a stepdad, obviously I've got my expectations, um, really up around being, you know, a father of my own child and what all that could mean and just the whole process of birth and baby and just how chuffed my parents would be as well. And look, you know, people have pressure from their parents all the time telling you if you're in the subcontinent, you know, from the subcontinent like my parents are that the pressure is intensified uh, tenfold. So we were I was really excited about it. I mean we miscarried the second time and I remember, you know, how upset understandably obviously you were uh, emotionally and I was really, really trying to hold it together, uh, not to show uh, really any emotion. Just again, because I didn't, I just, I thought my role was to be as strong as I possibly could for for, for Nadia. I remember just making you a cup of tea in our kitchen, uh, and and because and I had my back turned towards you, because we the, the kettle is and you went dining table. Um, I remember then just, I could feel, I was, I remember I just had to get emotional. And I remember saying to myself, don't let my shoulders shut up too much, because I don't want Nadia to see that I'm upset. Because I think the second miscarriage for me was I started to reconcile myself to say actually maybe it's just not my uh, my fate, yeah. my my kismet as we call it mm -hmm. to to have children. Maybe I'm never actually meant to be a dad of my own child, um, and and that was really for me that second one was, was really tough actually. And again, nobody nobody talks to you about this stuff. Nobody tells you about everything. You know that, that that miscarriage can entail not just the physical elements, but 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 the emotional elements. And I suppose for me, part of talking about it, like it's taken me years. I mean, I know you know the thing with politicians, often something happens and they talk straight away about what's gone on in their life. And I admire that. I think it's a lot of bravery from people doing that. But I mean, it's genuinely taken me years to just be able to talk about it because um, I just hope that other men. Because you know, there's often not a focus, and understandably so. Everybody knows why they're right to focus on women who suffer through miscarriage. But also for men, you don't actually have to bottle up. Mm. And I really regret the fact that certainly the first couple of miscarriages I really did that they should really talk about it. I was just going to ask you about the. Um, you said it, and I was thinking it as as you were talking about miscarriage. Nobody does tell you about the physical aspect, no. and everybody skims over that and yet you're going through probably one of the most traumatic physical things of your life. I, 
How important do you think that is, that people start to understand? I mean, I remember when I interviewed Nicola about her miscarriage, and she, you know, we've been very in-depth about everything that she felt and how she, what she was going through, but she kind of skimmed over that bit too, because you don't want to upset anybody. It seemed to be taken as it's, you're a woman and this is what happens, and your body will deal with it in the way that your body deems fit, but that's not correct, because there's a medical aspect to it as well. And each woman's health is different. So for me, I, I was anemic, um, which made me really, really ill to lose so much blood. My sister actually had to have a blood transfusion because she lost so much blood during a miscarriage with phone an ambulance. She, she couldn't walk. Mm -hmm. um, Hamza's sister during our first pregnancy, at this point, um, his parents didn't have any grandchildren. We were both pregnant at the same time. We both miscarried that same weekend. So sorry, not to take away from that question, but I remember thinking, you know, this isn't just a loss for us, it was a loss for the wider family, like his mm -hmm. parents were so desperate for, for grandchildren. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, his sister suffered, my sister suffered. It There's a medical aspect for it. Sending women home to deal with it at home mm -hmm. is not always the best way. It is for some, but the needing an operation or needing um, you know, medicine, needing to have that support in the hospital is, is really, really important that women understand that that option is there and it's painful. It's really painful. No matter, even if you're five weeks, it's painful. Yeah, but also emotionally, you're watching something physically leaving you that in your head and everything else had worked into being a future. Yes, yeah. your, your, your dream of your baby is uh -huh. gone. And every time you go to the toilet, it's just a stark reminder. Even after you've miscarried for, if you bleed for a week or two, every time you see that, it's just a reminder of, of what could have been. I remember, sorry to take away from you, but I remember when we went through one of the IVF treatments, I stopped going to the toilet. <laughs> I would stop going because you don't want the evidence. Yes. Of, mm -hmm. You know, and you, so you're just acutely aware yeah. of waiting for something to happen. Well, I used to go to the toilet, you know, like so many times in the night just to check that I was just bleeding, to just to check. Um, and it's, yeah, it becomes like a ritual almost. I must have phoned you. I mean, we speak quite regularly on the phone anyway during, during any given day, but I mean, I must have phoned you during your pregnancy ten times a day at least. And I just feel like, are you feeling okay? Any cramping, any bleeding, anything, 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 Mark? Be right. yeah. you know, just constantly asking. And the worst thing is when you, you know, over the four miscarriages we've had, when you've had that first bit of bleeding, you know, first thing I ever did in the first miscarriage was just Google everything yeah, I possibly could. Yeah. And so many people of course say, oh I bled and actually you had a viable pregnancy. Yeah. And in fact you bled with a mal, right? I bled um, so badly with a mal, With yeah. a mal, and obviously it worked out uh, fine and okay. And so you just hold on to that hope while of course at the same time knowing that it's just not a good sign. Yeah. And taking back to what you said about being in control, so with our third pregnancy with a mal, um, I did bleed because it was my third loss, um, we got seen by a consultant and put on progesterone and right. that seemed to stop the bleeding and we had uh, you know, a healthy pregnancy and a healthy baby. So do you then wish the same thing had happened before? Well, I remember bleeding the second time and please, this is just anything, uh -huh. anything you can try to stop bleeding because I can see look there's the heartbeat yeah. and it's growing, there must be something that I can try um, and they said there's not and that's not true. And I'm not meaning that the doctor or the nurse knew that there was something else, uh -huh. but evidence-based research is now coming to light that actually progesterone doesn't have a negative effect, it can only have no effect or a positive effect once the heartbeat's detected. So 
actually there's a big case that women should be getting it if they're right. bleeding in pregnancy. And you'd rather take that chance anyway. Yeah, because there's no side effects. So yeah. you, it did feel a little bit like I did, could have had an option, but my fi- my numbers weren't. I hadn't yeah. enough miscarriages yet, and that's painful. Yeah, I mean, there's, everybody talks now much better about miscarriage. You know, so people accept that it's something you should talk about. I don't know if that's entirely true. Do you know, right? Like when I'd phone into work, you know, first I tell people I was sick. Right. I wasn't sick, mm-hmm. and then I would tell like my my boss and my friends at work. Um, and then maybe afterwards I tell other people because it makes people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Why? Why do you think it does that? Even yesterday we were at dinner and I said, "Oh, I've got, they were doing this campaign and um, we've got an interview tomorrow because we've had, you know, we've had five losses and just there were like some obviously there was compassion there, but it was a little bit like the conversation didn't go further. I think it just people don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they just don't know what to say, and and so that's where you get the advice of another time, at least you have Maya, or at least you have Amal, and, um, and it's just, again, at that, you know, I was trying to think of what is it comparable to, like if, if, if I said to you just now, I promise you a spa day, I'm going to take you to this most amazing spa tomorrow, and, you know, a few hours later I changed my mind, you would be disappointed. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like at times I'm not allowed to be disappointed, my pregnancy didn't continue, Yeah. because uh-huh. it's not a tangible, I didn't really have it. It's 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 a strange one. I don't know it's how to explain cu- it better. I think also there's some cultural issues, which is again yeah. part of the reason I think it's important to talk about it because mm. you know often what I would hear from from families and friends, all well intentioned, was it's God's will. Yeah, it's God's will. It's God's will. And and I accept that. I'm, you know, I've spoken to you about how important my faith is uh, to me, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about it. We shouldn't explore it. And actually. That we shouldn't question, well, why did it happen? Could it be prevented from happening? We keep trying, um, but essentially people would just say, would say one phrase like that, like it's God's will, to just shut the entire conversation down mm-hmm. because either they were uncomfortable talking about it, didn't want to know more about it, or actually people are well intentioned and assume, for example, you might not want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But that should be, I suppose, our decision, um, yeah. to, as opposed to just shutting mm-hmm. the conversation. And people also say, oh, you know, there, you know, there must have been something wrong. I think our second one was really hard because we did see the consultant um, after that and she did say genetically it was fine and then she also told us to the boy which we didn't expect and that really hit hit me hard because the whole like the eight or nine weeks that I was pregnant before we started bleeding I was like 100% I know this is a boy like I just felt it I just knew it and so to then be told that was really hard just to hear but I didn't expect that that level would be known at that early stage um, so when then people said, oh, just obviously, you know, maybe something wrong, and it wasn't. So again, it's that kind of, but you don't want to do mean well. It's really funny, isn't it, that whole thing of um, people just wanting to say, oh, you, you didn't know this child. You know, that's all, oh, it wasn't there, and yet you, from the minute it happens, and you know, and if you're happy about your pregnancy, you've started to build, you have yeah. started to build you that future. Not, yeah, your mind goes forward, even... Like I'd say with our last one, which was only a month ago, uh-huh. so that's quite raw. Even then, you know, that was probably our shortest experience was five weeks. Um, but you can help it. In that week, my mind was like, everything that I can do, I have to do to try and keep hold of this pregnancy. So I was so proactive. And then mentally as well, trying not to think forward, but I was like, oh, I need an extra car of seat. And I would defend the car. You know, practicality comes in, logic comes in, but then emotion comes in uh-huh. that, you know, you, you automatically love this 
conceived embryo, fetus, yeah, baby, whatever you want to call it, you just love it. Mm. I mean, that thing you were saying was about family or relatives or whatever could say, oh, it's God's will. It's the same about any death or loss, sure, sure. but they wouldn't say, don't speak about your granddad that's well, died sure. or, you know, it, it is a strange, I wonder if it is just people's discomfort, they just don't know how to handle. Yeah, uh, it's an interesting analogy because, again, if I looked at the culture I'm from, you know, when somebody dies, uh, we do our funerals quickly, do the, the kind of first 24, 40 hours as per our, our cultural tradition, but within, you know, hours of an announcement that that person's passed away, people descend upon the person's house or the family home. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can have, I remember when the, uh, the late Bashir Ahmed, the MSP passed away, I remember hearing about his death at 7 o'clock at night, and myself and the First Minister uh, went to the house at Bashir's family home about half nine, ten o'clock, and by that point there was 50, 60, 70 people in the house already, yeah. praying their condolences. So actually, culturally, when there's a loss, people talk and they go to talk about that person, talk good things about that person. So you're absolutely right. In, in one sense, from a cultural point of view, when somebody passes and we say that's God's will, we yeah. accept, then people do talk. But you're absolutely right when it comes to, to miscarriage. I think it's a way of just people saying, let's just not talk about it. There's a reason what happened. Don't question it too much. You know, And then it's better you just forget about it now. I think that's the thing as well. That try again thing is a really interesting one that it's almost it discounts the emotion that you you're still dealing with when and quite often medical people will say that, oh, mm-hmm. you know, go off and try again, you're thinking it's probably the last thing yeah. you want to do. Yeah, physically and emotionally. It's yeah. hard to then get in a place where you don't want to try again. Yeah. Or actually you just want to try again so quick because you want the pain to not be there. Yeah. Mm. I mean before this happened to you would you have understood it, do you think? Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. I mean, I, again, as I say, my experience of miscarriage was just seeing what I saw on TV, films. Uh, it was always only one scene, wasn't it? Like, yeah. One of the cubicle oh miscarried. Uh, they were upset, and then the yeah. rest of the movie continued, uh, as it did. You know, I've never spoken. I've got lots of female cousins and obviously aunties and so on and so forth. But uh, nobody's ever spoken about it in our family context. Um, and even when we spoke about it, um, it was interesting actually when Nadia put up, you know, she recently, uh, after her last miscarriage, um, she, put, she put a video message to some kind of close friends. And the amount of people that came back and said, oh my goodness, I've been through similar, yeah. I've you know, talked about it. It's incredible just how little it's talked about in society generally. Yeah. And then within our, our, our kind of subcontinent culture. Do, you, do the men in the family tend to say, actually, you should just stop talking about this? I, I come from, I think, quite relatively open-minded right. family, so, 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 so not so much. But you can definitely see the discomfort in people's face. I mean, if my dad was sitting here, we were talking about it, you know, he's, he's wonderful, my dad, but, you know, you wouldn't want to hear the, the detail of it. You would probably quickly navigate to the other room and <laughs> yeah. make an excuse. And, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't say that again, it would be anything malicious, it's just... And also for women, particularly in the extended family, they, you may find older women might say, well, actually, that happened to me, and I didn't talk about it, and I'm fine. So they may, yeah. that might then make you feel uncomfortable. Yeah, definitely this idea that, it's, well, it's happened, and I went through it, and it just, you know, you get on with it. And again, try again. 
we find it. My dad tells the story of like, you know, there's a woman in, in Palestine, she had like 10 miscarriages and now she's got six kids. I don't really want that to be me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's that like, so you'll be fine, you can have loads. And it's not about having lots of children uh-huh. at all. It's not about needing to have kids and I need more children. It's about that you got pregnant, yeah. even if you weren't trying, and then you had something and then it's gone. It is also the only thing that you create together mm-hmm. that's physical really I mean you know you can build things and do things and it's not to undermine relationships because mine could so easily be like that that you didn't have children but when it's happened you can't just forget it you know it's parts of you that, that came together and also it's not even just that it's you know Maya was an only child until 10 so for me it was like that was her brother or sister you know and she's been asking since the age of four like I'm older, whereas my brother or sister, but they're younger than me. Why do they have a brother or sister and I don't? Um, so you feel like, even for me, if I thought, oh, I don't actually want any more children, it was always about, I felt a big chunk of it was about her. Um, and then for you, even again, it might be old fashioned, but I remember the second one, I was just really upset, I didn't mean it. <laughs> I was like, you're going to have to just get married to someone else. Like, I can't give you, like a child, and you're, su- you're so, such a great dad, and I just think you should probably find someone else. And then you were like feeling guilty and saying, no, but this could be my fault. And you start to then just work out why did it happen? Was it because I did this? Because I did that? Yes, yeah, it's a difficult time. Have you found that this has brought you together? Yeah, definitely. I'm going to ask for both of us here. <laughs> You're allowed. Yeah. Uh, no, for, for me, again, I mean, there's no, there's no barriers or secrets between yeah. and I. I mean, as I say, I mean, I'm literally saw the graphic detail of, 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 of a miscarriage and, and, and holding Nadia's hand while going through it and actually going through that hardship together on an emotional level but actually even the physicality of it for me definitely brought us closer but then also brought us closer when we had uh, Amal uh, mm-hmm. as well just going through the, the I was going to say nine months but she came four weeks early so the eight months of, 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 of uh, pregnancy with Amal that was an emotional rollercoaster, a complete and utter emotional rollercoaster. I think that probably brought us even closer together. You've seen everything. Um, there's no dignity yeah, <laughs> left of uh, that relationship. But I just always remember with the first one, I, I must have eventually fallen asleep and Hansa just was like lying on the floor, holding my hand mm-hmm. beside me for hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, that obviously, that support brings you closer together, but we were already very close. Mm. Um, but yeah, that support, like, Hansa's amazing. Like, it, Incredibly supportive, like emotionally in tune, like emotionally available. Um, yeah, I couldn't have had a better support. And even after the second one, I just needed to get away, so I went away to London for a couple of days to see my sister. And again, maybe looking back, that was selfish because I left you, but I just felt so overcome with sadness. And he was working, and Maya was at her dad's, and I just needed to not. I needed my sister and my mum, and mum was not. That sadness, because mm-hmm. I, um, when I look back on IVF treatment, stuff that hasn't worked, mm-hmm. I always say that I'm a sadder person than I was when I started. I felt I've seen something that in life that I didn't really want to see, or I couldn't forget. Yes. I guess. Yeah. I think everyone has pain. Um, it's important to process your pain. So after every miscarriage, I would give myself time. I wouldn't go to work, and I'd be very open to what was going on and I would let myself feel really sad. And then sometimes I'd think, oh, why am I still sad? And I'd say to you, I'm still really feeling sad, or I'd just keep crying. And then after a while, I'd, I'd process, but that pain's still there. 
I almost imagine like my heart was just like a you know a couple of dots on it, and that's that's what that pain is. Um, but yeah, it's just sad, and I think in a, we live in a world where you're always supposed to be happy, and that's maybe what makes people feel uncomfortable. Yeah, they so do tend to say, oh, I'm just so sad about it. Um, that's that should be fine. Like kind of pull yourself together. Yeah, like I don't need you to tell me anything of why it didn't work because you don't know either. Um, but I just need to have a space to to process my sadness, my grief, my loss, and mm. yeah, you need that. So now it's time for the final part of the show. That's the rant of the week. That's an opportunity for Mandy to dig deep and talk us through some of her various uh, pieces of irritation in the world. Mandy, have you got something that's been bugging you this week? Yeah, well, it was going to be on a more general issue around uh, young people, but also (laughs) young people thinking they're invincible to the virus. There was then this huge protest uh, in Holyrood Park at the weekend. I think there were about 400 people there. Um, people that refuse to wear masks, that are anti-vaxxers, that think this is all a conspiracy, blah de blah But then we have Novak Djokovic. Oh, yes. So he kind of encapsulates the whole thing for me because not only does he appear to be an anti-vaxxer, he's somebody that um, has really downplayed everything to do with the virus to the point where a whole load of tennis players all caught the virus by meeting together. He was diagnosed positive. He's been seen since walking about without a mask. Um, yeah, he seems to be a kind of conspiracist in some ways. Yeah, but also, you know, despite the fact that a whole load of people all tested positive for uh, the virus, having all met together through him, mm. he then talked about the fact that he was the victim of a witch hunt. <laughs> you know, you're not really a victim of a witch hunt when, in fact, the the hunt was was the issue. Well, um, yeah. Uh, but not only that, he's also he's become just a bit of a lightning rod rod for all kinds of controversies for me because he also was trying to set or has set up this breakaway tennis players association, mm-hmm. which initially wasn't about involving women because he seems to think that it's about men male tennis players who are getting all the big bucks and women are kind of second class. Yeah, there was there was a suggestion, wasn't that was the, the certainly the claim. He's tried to deny that since. Um but you know you've seen um Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, they've already come out to condemn him and that's, you know, pretty damning for him, I would say. This yeah. is his long standing belief that if uh if men are better at tennis as he thinks that they are, then they should get paid more basically, I think, is is his understanding. I mean, Maybe it, his yeah, maybe his view is if he doesn't think a virus exists, maybe he thinks just women being good tennis players don't exist. Yeah, it's an odd one because women's tennis is really a very successful sport. <laughs> <laughs> and you actually you know, can't deny it. <laughs> there are, but, I mean, there are sports where where women's crowds are much smaller and things, you know, just largely because they've been held back in the past. But yeah. this is, tennis is not one of them. Yeah. So have, you, just... have you heard the expression, have you heard of a rat licker before, Mandy? A what? A rat licker. No. It's a newfound expression for someone that's, it's a, it's a reference to the plague. So it's the idea that if you're refusing oh, to yeah. wear a mask during a pandemic, you're basically akin to someone during the plague that would just go up and start licking rats. Oh, and maybe that's why. <laughs> and after all of this, he says, this whole situation has left me feeling really sad and lonely. Well, you have to wonder how he came to that stage, don't you? <laughs> I mean, he was organising tennis parties, so maybe he did used to have more friends. Yeah, maybe he's just, yeah, he feels he's just not really part of the controversies that he's sparked. But anyway, I mean, I think in this case, there's not a lot politicians can do about Novak Djokovic. But um, 
Maybe Serena Williams should act. I think so. I think that would be excellent. Yeah. <laughs> So they say a week is a long time in politics, and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's Politically Speaking podcast. I hope we've enlightened and entertained, and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics, remember you know a podcast that can help them with that. If you enjoyed this episode of Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine and the chat between Liam and I, remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also remember to check out our fortnightly release of Hollywood Magazine, available in print or online at hollywood.com. Bye for now.